words that I'd like to direct your attention to this morning are found in the book of Psalms. We'll be looking at Psalm 50. We're in between sermon series right now. Uh, the next book that I'm going to preach on is Philemon, just as, because it's connected to Colossians. We just finished Colossians. Um, but because we're going to ask preachers um, uh, two weeks in a row, I thought it'd be good to, to preach a message on Thanksgiving since this is Thanksgiving week and then begin Philemon in two weeks so that that book isn't split. So uh, and I was drawn to Psalm 50 is because it, it it does speak of Thanksgiving. It's a central theme of the psalm. Um, and I was just profoundly struck by it just in my own reading of Scripture, uh, just in my own Bible time uh, earlier this year and was just drawn to want to spend more time within it. And so we'll look at Psalm 50. So if you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 50, I will read it, then we'll pray and examine the passage. The Mighty One, God, Yahweh, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness for God Himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people. And I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done And I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Please pray with me. 
Lord, again, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but you've given us your word that we might know you, that we might trust you and turn away from our sin and to run to you. And Lord, I pray that you would work in power through your word, that we would not just be uh, increased intellectually, that we would not just merely understand what you're saying here, but that you would inflame our hearts for worship, that you would blow our minds to have a, a right understanding of who you are and, a, and an accurate understanding of who we really are in light of who you are. Cause us to praise and assist me now to make your word clear. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, simple four parts to this message. Uh, in verses 1 through 6, God calls his people to judgment. Then in the next section, 7 through 15, he rebukes his people for their arrogant worship. And then again in 16 through 21, he rebukes them for hypocritical living. And then he concludes the passage by calling his people to repentance. Let's look first of all at uh, that first section, verses 1 through 6, where he comes to his people in judgment. He begins in verse 1 by saying, The mighty one, God, Yahweh, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of its sun to its setting. Now, verse 1 is actually a thundering introduction to this psalm. Because God introduces himself not just with one word, not just with two titles, but with three titles. The first word is God, El which emphasizes his deity and it emphasizes deity in contrast to humanity. He is the creator and he is addressing his creatures. The second word is Elohim, which essentially means he's the God of gods. He is the all powerful one. It emphasizes his absolute supremacy over everything in creation, even angels and demons, Satan himself. And Yahweh, the third word that he uses to introduce himself, is his covenant name. The name by which he introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush, which he told to his covenant people, Israel, to address him as. It means, I am that I am. And it designates that he is the self-existent one. That he has always existed. He has never had a beginning. He will never have an end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The giver of all life and he sustains all life. As Paul says in Acts 17, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything comes from him, from him, through him, and to him are all things. God has no need whatsoever. We are the needy ones. And this is the God who speaks and, and summons all mankind to come before him for judgment. Notice it says he, he summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. The, the imagery there is he's summoning the whole earth. All people that on earth do dwell need to come before his throne to receive their judgment. 
And this psalm really anticipates the day when all people will be judged by God. This is one of those futuristic psalms or prophetic psalms that looks to an event that is yet to come. God is giving it to us that we might know what is going to happen on the day of judgment. What is it that he will be examining us for? Notice he says, this judgment takes place in Jerusalem, in Zion. That's where Christ is going to establish his future role at his coming, rule, sorry, at his coming. Christ will rule there. And not only rule there, but that's actually where he will perform judgment upon all men. Here it's described as the perfection of beauty. And he will dwell there in all of his Shekinah glory. Notice it says, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. And he's not only going to shine forth there and rule there, but again, he's coming there to judge. In fact, Christ's future judgment is actually a critical piece of the gospel itself. An often missed part of the gospel. In fact, in Acts 10.42, the gospel message proclaimed by the apostles was, He commanded us to preach to people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. And on the basis of that future judgment... The only hope you have is to be in Christ. That was the gospel message. You don't get the good news unless you understand judgment's coming upon all sinners. In fact, in Romans 2, Paul specifically designates Christ's future judgment as part of the gospel. He says, on that day, referring to the day of judgment, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of man by Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, the one who saves, is also going to be the one who judges. And every man, believer and unbeliever, will face this judgment. This is what Romans 14, 10 says. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Nobody's going to escape this. Even if they're a part of God's family, even if they're saved, they will one day face this judgment and have to give an account of themselves to God for what they have done. And it's not only our deeds that will be judged, but even the depths of our heart, the very formation of our motives, ambitions, our loves and our passions. First Corinthians says that during this judgment, Jesus will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And that's important for us to recognize because there's so many people that think as long as I'm just doing what God expects, I'm checking off the external boxes, I'm going to be okay. But God doesn't just care about external obedience. He really cares about our heart. And anticipating this, the wisest king of ancient Israel, Solomon, he summed up all of his wisdom. If he was going to give counsel, this is what he would say. This is what he did say. He says, for this is the end of the matter. After all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. 
Notice, not just keep his commandments, but fear God and keep his commandments. For, verse 14 of Ecclesiastes 12, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. All of it will be known and be judged. And and notice in verse 3, there's nothing subtle about this call to judgment. It says, our God comes, he does not keep silence. And before him is a devouring fire, a, a, a mighty tempest. I mean, the, the, the imagery here of God coming in a storm with lightning and fire, um, are, these are typical metaphors of divine judgment. And the significance that he does not keep silence is actually clarified in verse 21. See, although throughout history, God, in, in a sense, has remained silent. He has not immediately disciplined us for our sin. He has not immediately punished us or corrected us. And therefore, many people assume that there is no God. Or that God doesn't really care that much about sin because I did this sin and nothing happened to me. In fact, the Apostle Peter speaks to this in Second Peter chapter three three. In fact, I would encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. Second Peter three, verses three and four. Peter says that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, "Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as if they were from the beginning of creation." And then just skip down to. Verse 9, and it explains why the Lord is kept silent for so long. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason God has, in a sense, been silent before this day of judgment, but the reason he's waiting to bring about this conviction, to bring about this punishment. The reason we have not yet had our day in court is because God wants all people everywhere to repent and believe in Him. So His patience is an expression of mercy. It's not that God doesn't care about sin. It's that God cares infinitely about our souls. As Paul warned in Romans 2, Do you not suppose, O man, you judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that it's God's kindness that's meant to lead you to repentance? Paul's point is, the reason God has not struck you dead on account of your sin is because He wants you to repent before it's too late. Don't presume upon his patience. Don't presume upon his kindness. But repent now. Because one day, every single one of us will face the judgment of God. But notice that the focus of God's judgment in this psalm isn't so much on all peoples, though that all people are addressed. His focus is actually on his covenant people, the Jews. Look at verse 5. Gather to me my faithful ones 
who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. You, you can see that how this focus of the psalm has been narrowed. He's addressing his hero, my people in verse seven, but in Psalm 41, he addresses hear this all peoples. So all peoples will face judgment, but here he wants to zero in on his covenant people. And the Hebrew term for covenant people there is Hasid, Hasidic, where we get the word uh, Hasidic Jews. In other Psalms, that word is used in a positive sense to describe God's loyal fathers, the loyal Jews. But here it just simply means those who have made a covenant with God, who have professed to be his people, his children, his followers, his worshipers. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have true allegiance, that their allegiance is wholehearted, just that they have professed to be followers of Christ or of the living God. And as you know, just because a person appears to be devoted to God doesn't mean that they are. Right? Jesus says in Matthew 7, on that day, referring to the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. You depart from me, workers of lawlessness. I recently had an opportunity to serve as a juror in a court case in Washington County, and it was a very sobering thing, especially when it came to the moment where we had to come to a verdict and, and present or at least consider what evidence really condemned or exonerated the person. And it's difficult to come to a verdict, especially knowing what the consequences of violating the law of our land might be. Because we're all violators of the law. We all sin. We all are weak. And so when it comes to passing judgment, there's a, there's a sense of hypocrisy almost. And just trying to get even 12 people to agree is a challenge in and of itself. But the Lord's not going to face such difficulty on this day. Because He knows everything both the things seen and the things that are hidden. And moreover, he is perfectly righteous. He will have no qualms in calling each one of us out for our iniquity. Because he's holy. And that's why we can anticipate this, because his judgment will be just. It will be 100% accurate. As Abraham declared before God pronounced judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The answer is yes, of course. This judgment will be just. And we will all know it. Regardless of what the conviction is. We will know that is just. That is absolutely what I deserve. And in verses 7 through 15, God then is, has presented his first indictment, but then he comes... Sorry, that, sorry, in the next verses, he's presenting his first indictment in this judgment that he's bringing upon his people. And it centers on their worship. God rebukes his people for their arrogant worship. 
Notice that he's not rebuking them for failing to offer prescribed sacrifices. Not for, their, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, because they're always before me. You're not failing to offer sacrifices. That's not the problem. You're not, quote unquote, failing to be obedient in prescribed methods of worship. So what's the issue then? What's, what's he upset about? If the Israelites are doing what they're supposed to be doing in worship, why is God upset? What's he rebuking them for? Well, look at the verses that follow and just see if you can identify the core problem. Just look at it. What is it that God's so upset about? What if they're offering sacrifices? What gives? The problem is they misunderstood the nature of worship. First of all, it's because they are assuming that they're doing something for God by offering up these sacrifices. They think that they're helping God. They think that that God is the needy one and they're coming to his rescue. They're they're adorning God. They're making him look better. This is why God says he doesn't need livestock, bulls and sheep and goats, because they all belong to him anyway. Verse 10, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And notice verse 11, not just every beast that roams the earth, but every flying thing as well. The, the Hebrew word there refers to not just birds, but bugs. Locusts, gnats, flies, all the, the multitude, of th- multitude of things that go buzz. God's saying, I'm their shepherd too. In fact, the word that he says there, he says, he, he, it's yada, it means he knows them. Which means, that word yada means to watch, to take care of. So, they not only belong to them, to him, all these bugs, all these birds, all these animals, they don't only belong to him, he knows each one of them. In a sense, you could say by name. So, just think, that fly you recently squatted or that spider you just stepped upon, like God knows its name. That was Fred. And Fred is now dead. Now, I don't, I don't think God actually has a problem with us killing bugs at all. But this is the point. God knows every single one. And therefore, He doesn't need anything. They're His. So anything that anybody else might offer up to Him as a sacrifice is already His already. It's like a kid who gets an allowance, being impressed by giving back that allowance to his parents. Nice thing, but not necessary. And actually, verse 12 is really humbling to these arrogant worshipers because they think they're helping God out. Notice what he says, verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. If he did need something, he wouldn't come to us. Because we can't give him anything that he lacks. He wouldn't go to a creature for help. And we need to understand that, that, that God's not looking down from his throne on all of mankind and just wringing his head, hands in self-pity and going, Oh, why won't anybody love me? Why won't anybody worship me? Why? 
I deserve all this honor and glory and praise and nobody seems to care about me. That is not what God is doing. God doesn't need any of the worship. He is absolutely content, thrilled in and of himself as the triune God. It's not God who needs us. It's we who need God. And that desperately is the case. Giving back to God, it's, it's, like, it's like a candle think, boasting and giving light to the sun. Here, sun, let me, let me help you out with your brightness a little bit. I mean, that's, that's arrogance. God did not establish Israel's sacrificial system for his benefit. He gave it to Israel simply so that they might enjoy all of the benefits of his presence. He gave it to them so that they could have him. He didn't need any of those things and he didn't need Israel. But he knew that Israel needed him. So he has them do these things that they might enjoy him, which is what they were created for. And this is this is so relevant for us today. Because there are just there are so many people who think they're doing God a favor by coming to church. They think they're doing something for God by giving of their tithes and their offerings. When they sing loudly, when they share the gospel with a stranger. Many people think that even choosing not to commit a sin is doing God a favor. Like they really think that. And they even, maybe in the, in the silence of their hearts, just think, man, God should just be so proud of me on how obedient and good I was today. Look at all the things that I've done for you, God. Again, it's like a candle telling the sun, look at all the light that I gave to you. So if God doesn't need our worship, if he doesn't need our time, our sacrifices, he doesn't need our service, our giving, why, why should we do these things if he doesn't need any of it? It's again, because we need it. We desperately need it. And in fact, recognizing this is the fundamental principle behind true worship. Recognizing that it's we who are needy, not God, is what will drive true worship. God calls His people to worship Him because they need to recognize that He is God and not them. They need Him to provide everything for them if they're going to do anything in return. They sacrifice to God because they're showing, they recognize He's given back to them. Everything they have is from Him. And most of all, most important of all, we need to recognize that we need God to save us from our sin. I mean, just think about this. Our weakness, our neediness, is a tremendous blessing. Maybe the height of all blessings in light of this principle. 
It's a gift. This is why Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 1. That it's not many mighty who are saved. It wasn't all the wise people. It wasn't all the rich and all the powerful. But God chose the weak things in the world to shame the strong. The foolish things in the world to shame the wise. Why? God doesn't need any wise guys. God doesn't need wealth. God doesn't need rich and powerful and influential people. They need him. But those who have strength, those who have might, those who have authority and power don't recognize how desperate they are for all of these things from God. They think they deserve it. They think they've earned it. They think they've accomplished it. That's why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because rich people don't recognize that everything they have is already a gift from God. They actually think they deserve it. And you see that by the way they act. They think they're entitled to it, but they forget that they're but dust here today and gone tomorrow. So if God doesn't need anything, what does he want? Well, notice he says in verse 14, this is so sweet. God wants you to understand this. Offer to sacrifice, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the most high, especially verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So what does God want? God wants to help you. God just wants to help you. He wants you to acknowledge that you need him. I mean, honestly, one of the greatest heresies that's ever been preached is the heresy that says God helps those who help themselves. That's baloney. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth from what God says here. Particularly in verse 15, which I one could argue is the main point of this psalm and arguably the main point of the Bible Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Underline this verse in your Bibles. Memorize this verse. Cite this verse every time that you pray. God, you said, call upon me in the day of trouble. You will deliver me. God wants us to plead his word back to him. In fact, A person is never more in the will of God when they're desperately crying out for help. That's what God wants. God wants you to call out to him because your greatest need is to realize how desperately you need him. And that's why giving thanks is really the highest form of worship. Even more than sacrificing. Even more than obedience. Though we need to do both. But giving thanks. Because the thankful person realize they have received, they haven't earned. And just consider the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. 
He answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. God, I've done all these things for you. And he's addressing the Pharisees here, as you know. Because they despise the wicked ones of Israel. And they, but but they, they would not receive forgiveness because they thought God owed them something. We've obeyed all these Pharisaical laws. We've done all our sacrifices. And yet, they were the ones that led the people of Israel in the execution of their Messiah. Why? Because they thought they deserved better. They were not thankful. They were slaves of self-righteousness. This is why Jesus gave the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Right? The Pharisee said, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Tax collector standing far off wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is, note, this is what Jesus says. I tell you, this man, referring to the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Why? Because only the humble realize how desperate they are for God. The proud thinks they're giving something to the Almighty. And that's nothing but arrogance in his eyes and foolishness in our hearts. So Israel failed to realize the true nature of worship, which is God's first indictment against them. His second indictment is their hypocritical living. Right, but... but To the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? Because you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. I mean, what he's addressing here is the fact that unlike the Gentiles, they're the Jews. They have God's word. They have the law. They have the revelation that he's given. Special revelation. The law, the prophets, all the books of wisdom. In the writings. And yet they still choose to break that law that they have. And no, it's the same indictment God, sorry, Paul leveled against the Jews in Romans 2. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? When you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? You boast in the law, yet dishonor God by breaking the law. For it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I mean, what Paul said in the New Testament is the same thing God said in the Old Testament. You know the truth, and yet you still continue to disobey it. What right have you to take my words upon your lips, therefore? And this disregard for the law is manifested in 18 through 21. Even though, as we know, God said, thou shalt not steal. Israel not only... Saw thieves, they joined them. Even though God said you shouldn't commit adultery, they're hanging out with adulterers. Though God said you shall not bear false witness, they not only lie, but they give their mouth full reign for evil, even slandering their own brothers. 
And notice, this is the same people who boast in their sacrifices. The same people who talk about the Scripture. And yet they also despise the same Scriptures by willfully disobeying them. Again, they they think God should be impressed by them. Not realizing how desperate they are for mercy. And because they they haven't faced any obvious consequences, they just assume they're getting away with it. Or that God's just okay with it. But this is decidedly not the case. We need to see this. Verse 21. These things you've done and I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you. I lay the charge before you. God says now is the time for judgment. And unlike unlike men, God is not going to turn a blind eye from any sin or any failure. Every single sin will come into judgment. None will be overlooked. So even though there was an immediate consequence for their blatant hypocrisy, a day of reckoning will come. So again, God's presenting his case. And even in our own courtrooms, a court case is presented. Charges are announced. Attorneys then present all their evidence. The jury comes to a verdict. That verdict is announced and then comes the sentencing. And that's where we're at in the psalm. God has presented all the evidence. He's given his verdict. And now we're going to await the sentencing. But instead of giving damnation in verse 22, he gives his people time. Notice he just warns them. Mark this, then you who forget God. God gives his people this psalm so that they might anticipate this day of judgment, which will come, which will happen. And he gives it to them so that they might repent before that day happens. Before this destined day comes. Because if they don't, he says in verse 22, he will rip them to shreds and no one will be able to help them. That, that imagery there is, is used in other Psalms to describe what a lion does to its prey. Again, some people assume, well, God would never do anything to hurt anyone. Because he's he's a God of love. He's just like a giant marshmallow. He's all rainbows and lollipops, hugs and kisses. Well, Satan is the one that wants people to think of God in those terms. Notice, it's God who describes himself this way, not me. These are God's words. God knows what he's like. And God knows exactly how he's going to respond to sin. Some people might suggest, but but that's the Old Testament God. Jesus, Jesus was all love and kindness. But remember what we saw earlier. The New Testament teaches that Jesus is the one who's bringing this judgment. Jesus is the one who's actually speaking in verse 22. It's the second person in the Trinity, not the first or the third. Moreover, just consider this 
New Testament text. Hebrews chapter 10. This is the New Testament God. Verse 30. 1030. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of that God unless you are holy. And the only way anyone can become holy is if they fully trust in Christ to be their Savior and then repent from their sins, showing they know they need Him. This this same God commands all people everywhere to repent and believe in Him so that they might be saved from Him. Right? Verse 23, to the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Repentance is necessary. Not just belief, but repentance. We're saved by faith, but if that faith is real, if it's genuine, it will lead to repentance from every sin. Not just five sins, not just the big sins that people see, but from the sins that are in the depths of our soul. We don't go, well, nobody saw it, so I get a pass. No, all of our sins needs to be repented from again and again and again and again and again. None of it can be coddled or justified. The one who orders his way rightly will have the salvation of God. And notice that right after God says there's going to be none to deliver, he also says that the one who repents is the one who will be delivered. Right? The point is, only God can save you from God. Only Him. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Right? Again, we have to recognize, it's not God who's the needy one. We're the needy ones. We need Him. And that's precisely why only Christ can save us. That's why Christ took on flesh. Very God of very God becoming man is because there was no other way by which we can be saved. We are the needy ones. So what shall we do knowing that this this day of judgment is coming? Well, again, first recall what God said in verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you. Romans ten thirteen says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Speaking of the name of Jesus. Romans ten thirteen, And if you recognize the judgment you deserve on account of your sin, call out to Christ to save you and you will be saved. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
And then in verse 22, God says he's even looking for other things, not just that we would be saved. But he's also looking for thanksgiving. Well, why thanksgiving? Again, because the one who gives thanks recognizes that what they have, they don't deserve. Thanksgiving assumes that you have received something that you are unworthy of. Or you don't give thanks for things that you think you deserve. You give thanks for what you don't deserve. Again, Christians should recognize that everything they have is a gift from God. Not just salvation, but everything we have. As Paul asked the Corinthians, what, have, what do you have that you have not received? And if you've received it, why then do you boast as if you have not received it? Christians should find all their worth in Christ. Are we just saying that all I have is Christ? Paul said in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, as he examined his immensely successful life from a worldly perspective. That's what he said in Philippians 3, 7, or verse verse 8, sorry. Indeed, I count everything as loss, all those accomplishments, nothing. I count them all as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. In order that I may just gain Christ. Paul realized he was so desperate. All of his earthly accomplishments were only garbage. Holding him back from true satisfaction and joy. He only wanted one thing. And he was immensely thankful for that one thing. Namely Christ. Right? And that's why grumbling, complaining about anything... Anything is highly offensive to God. In light of the multitude of mercy that he's given us. Because just think about it. A grumbler assumes that Christ isn't enough. That that God's holding out on them. They deserve more than Christ We need to recognize that complaining is actually an act of worship. It's a worship of self. Honestly, you might, if you're going to come choose to complain, you might as well turn to the east and pray to Mecca. Or bow down before an idol of Buddha. It's just, it's just another God. When you're complaining, you are worshiping. You are worshiping yourself. Because you think you deserve something. You are worthy of something. And you're not getting it. And this is why Christians should give thanks in all circumstances. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 This is the will of God for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. Because you realize everything you have, you should be thankful for. Especially knowing you have a sovereign God who's working everything out for your good. Because you have Christ. As Job said. And what an example, right? He lost everything. The Lord gave 
the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And God said in all these things, Job did not sin. William Carey, the father of modern missions, left for, Eng- for India from England in 1793, and he never came home. He lost two wives. One of them went crazy because of the circumstances, even slandering him publicly. He labored for 40 years without a furlough, without a break, without a vacation. And then on March 11th, 1812, after almost 20 years of work, a fire broke out in the warehouse where he had stored 20 years of translation work. 20 years. Gone. In a day. And this is how he responded. In one short evening, the labors of years are consumed. How unsearchable are the ways of God. I had lately brought some things to the utmost of perfection of which they seemed capable and contemplated the missionary establishment with perhaps too much self-congratulation. The Lord has laid me low that I may look more simply to him. God was merciful. That's what he's saying. And it's no surprise that even though he had accomplished amazing things, and if you know his biography, stunning, one of the greatest men in all history. But he learned something that day. And so it should, it should be as no surprise that on his tombstone, this is what he wanted written. His epitaph says, A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. Heavenly Father, wretched, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lord, we confess that we can bring nothing to You except what You've already given to us. And then to think how much You've given us you didn't only give us Christ. You didn't only free us from our sin. Lord, you've given us family. You've given us friends. You've given us this church. You've given us your word. You've given us freedom for a time in this nation. You've given us resources that nobody in history has ever had access to. Lord, we are the wealthiest of all people who have ever lived Lord, you have blessed us in ways that, that we, could, we could never cease giving you thanks for. Lord, and just to think we are but dust. We are creatures. And that we bring nothing to you. Just as the psalmist said, or the, the, the hymn writer said, nothing in our hands we bring, but only to the cross we cling, because all we have is Christ. So charge us. Inflame our hearts to be abounding in thanksgiving. And not just this week, but in the years ahead. 
Help us to be the most thankful of people. We ask these things in Christ's name.